I don't know if we're in the chit chat stage of our. Please commence chit chat. Okay. A situation mm. has emerged. Some mm. big news has broken just as we were coming here. What? I received a phone call from one Theo Baker who said, huh. Your blue check marks are gone. Mine's gone. Oh. Yours oh. is gone. gone. Hey. Yours is Mazel gone. Tov, everybody. No, yours is gone too. I, I just sent... think that's exciting. Aren't we? We all want to be de check marked. <laughs> Otherwise, you're one of those people that pays for the check marks. I know. Well, that's true. It would be humiliating <laughs> to be like tragic. the only Could person who still had a check mark. Yeah. than to pay the richest man in the world <laughs> to have a check mark next wow. to your name? I have to say, I don't mean to celebrate anybody's misfortune. But his giant rocket blew up today. <laughs> Schadenfreude kind of what well, Maybe surging. he's distracting us journalists from the rocket blowing up. Oh, wow. With the blue checkmark. Well, it's working, evidently. because. But I'm trying to bring it back to the matter at hand, which is the explosion of his metaphor. <laughs> well, it's, it's also the explosion of his bank account. Never have I seen anyone spend more money more <laughs> yeah. recklessly. Well, he's been on a bit of a media sort of romance tour recently, trying to be very calm and mature. Mm-hmm. How's that going? I, yeah, I don't think so. What did somebody, <laughs> I just saw that they're having to cut the price of Teslas like again and again oh, and really? again and I again. I didn't see that. Now, of oh. course, I, I don't think I would be in the market for a Tesla at this point, but... Um, or a SpaceX rocket <laughs> from the look of it. <laughs> yeah, really? Do you want to buy a car from this man? Yeah. But yeah. do you think... <laughs> After I mean, seeing that launch? Like, I don't know. I know we're all, like, sort of cheering, like, his, like, epic fail on Twitter. But, you know, I have to say I still come back to the idea that here's this incredibly valuable news platform that's being broken. And I just don't see anything that's replacing it. I mean, that Post News and Mastodon and, I mean, Instagram, for that matter. Those are just not substitutes at this point. But it's amazing he has ruined it. I I just it has none of the snap, none of the same sort of smart people to to kind of bounce back and forth. I mean, it still serves a purpose of showing you a little bit about what's breaking. And right. But but, that's a very significant I mean, I'm just saying that I know we're bemoaning the things that are lost. But I feel like in a way we're inured to like the really big thing that's that's being lost, which is there's nothing else. There's nowhere else where we can get like think of all the people that I follow uh, you know, who are in Ukraine covering the war or, you know, who are China hands in, in, in Asia. I don't see any way to reassemble that ability to get that amount of information and news, not the commentary, you but know. But I think these things, you, you get the social media platforms that you deserve. And Facebook <laughs> became a reflection of us as a society. And Twitter ultimately became a reflection of a certain kind of oligarchy. I mean, the fact that he was able to buy it and Absolutely. destroy it felt kind of topical and appropriate. But I think actually one of the lessons is these things come and go and something will fill that vacuum. It's not going to linger. Yeah, although I don't ever, I've never, we've never seen anything like the news value that uh, Twitter was able to put in a a relatively, you know, kind of uh, low bells and whistles, you know, kind of paired, stripped down. I would argue that in a way you've just gotten months maybe years of your life back, all that time (laughs) that went down the tube. Welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Susan Glasser and Jane Mayer. Hi to you both. Hi, Evan. Hey there.
There is an old Washington joke about spending, which is often attributed to Senator Everett McKinley Dirksen, which goes like this, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. (laughs) Well, that joke was on my mind this week when it was announced that Fox News settled with Dominion Voting Systems for three quarters of a billion dollars. It's one of the largest, if not the largest, defamation settlements ever reported. But will that payout, which comes without a formal apology, I'll remind you, will that change anything about Fox moving forward? And is that staggering sum of money large enough to constitute real money if you are Rupert Murdoch? So before we get too deep into the Fox Dominion settlement, we have to start with the report that the MyPillow founder and election denier Mike Lindell has to pay out $5 million over his wild claim to have data showing Chinese interference in the election. At the time, you may have forgotten this, he even held a contest called Prove Mike Wrong. And on Wednesday, somebody did, it turns out, according to an arbitration panel. So, Susan, I'm curious what you make of that. Is nature healing itself. Uh, what do you make of the Mike Well, Lindell? first of all, I think it shows that we all should have entered this contest because <laughs> probably it might not have been as hard as we thought to earn $5 million because, in fact, it's actually not that hard to prove that crazy, insane claims are crazy, insane, and baseless. Every single investigation, it should be said again and again. Every single investigation of the 2020 election from Lindell, from Donald Trump himself uh, in the States, Everybody who's investigated it at any level, uh, whether it's the claims about Dominion voting machines or uh, about foreign interference in the election, they've all been disproven. And it's starting to get expensive to people. And so that gets us to what actually happened earlier this week. Jane, we were all prepared for a trial to get underway, a trial that was described as the Super Bowl of media defamation trials. So why did Fox and Dominion settle at the last minute? Well, there were obvious things that appealed to each of them. It's a tremendous amount of money for Dominion. Um, Dominion's made an incredible investment in this case. They're getting back just uh, multiples of, of money for themselves. And for for Fox, it was worth that much money to never have this trial and never have to put this incredible amount of dirty laundry out there in Public, but I've seen it argued, both you know, both ways. Who won? Was it was it Fox? Was it Dominion? You could argue it either way, but I think the bottom line, from my standpoint, the question that really matters is who who really didn't win. And I think that is the American public, and I think that is American democracy. The only the only metric I think of what really matters here is whether Fox will stop selling lies to make money and polluting American discourse with disinformation. Spoiler and, and, alert, no. And well, I mean, and you can, as, as Susan just said, look at the statement that they put out with the settlement. It's complete doublespeak. Far from saying we're sorry, it's saying this just proves what a high commitment we have to high standards of journalism. But before we get into what the settlement says, I think we have to remind some people who have not been following on every syllable of this case the way that some of us have, just a few of the 
actual details of this lawsuit that we've already seen, that were already brought to light. Susan, when you look back on this, what are some of the highlights that came out in the pretrial element that turned out to be, in its own way, totally explosive? Well, I think you're right, Evan, to point this out, because that's one of the weird things about Fox deciding to settle at the very last minute, because if they were willing to pay this much money, you'd think they would have been willing to pay this much money maybe a couple months ago in order to stop what, by any measure, has got to be about the most damaging discovery that I've ever seen Mm. in a court case, right? You know, we have had evidence emerge as a result of this $1.6 billion lawsuit that was directly from Rupert Murdoch himself, correspondence with his own son, with his top executives from Fox, with many of the boldface name Fox hosts, such as Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. What did it show? It showed in writing in their own words that they knew that the election lies and that Trump's bogus claims not only about Dominion but more broadly about the rigged election were kooky, dangerous, wrong-headed. That's the Fox false. people in their own words. And, and false, yeah. mostly, most importantly, that right. they knew it was a lie. Absolutely. They knew it was a lie. And, you know, it began to establish in the evidence that became public the possible motive for the crime, if you will, right? The, the motive yeah. being to hang on to their audience, mm. which was so fanatically supportive of Trump, Fox feared that they were going to defect in large numbers to rival much smaller right-wing uh, channels that would freely embrace Trump's lies about the election. I mean, I would I would argue that I, I agree with Susan that the, the, the discovery was incredibly damaging. I think not since, basically since, like, Toto pulled the curtain off of the Wizard of Oz and you got to see the little man there on Earth. Have we seen, you know, that's that's what happened to Rupert Murdoch. We saw the little man at his cash register um, worrying that he was going to make less money. And, and surrounded uh, but, by I other say, little men like Tucker Carlson sitting there saying, oh my God, the stock price is going down. And then talking have, about Trump as a demonic force. That let's was the not, key. Let, that was one of the that. absolute key um, moments. I mean, there was like, if you had to really pick a couple, I think that the demonic force line from Tucker Carlson is a keeper. Amazing. But there was also this moment when you actually got to see the sort of patient zero, the origin of this ridiculous lie about yeah. Dominion, which was this letter, this email that in its own presentation described the theory as wackadoodle. And then that sort of goes through the whole system of Fox and ends up on the air over and over again. So, you know, in some ways, I think part of what you're both vocalizing is this sense of letdown that we had all kind of collectively as a public culture decided that this case was actually almost like a democratic instrument, lowercase d, meaning that it was going to finally achieve some kind of public airing of not just the the lies around the 2020 election, but this whole movement of deception, this whole kind of idea that you could say anything and get away with it. Because I think that's really what this was about, this notion that we were living in an era when it just doesn't matter what the my pillow guy says. It doesn't matter what Fox says. They can do it with total impunity. And can and, there ever be accountability for Donald Trump's sins when Donald Trump himself is not held accountable? And that, you know, once again, right, I, there's a headline that kind of encapsulates this, right? Rupert Murdoch pays for Donald Trump's lies. And of course, he's also self-interestedly paying in a way for the privilege of keeping his audience by lying to it. Uh, so it's not it's not entirely just paying for Trump's lies. But, you know, again, we come back to this idea that I, I feel like it's the source, actually, of a lot of the pent up and unexpressed 
uh, sort of inchoate rage that exists, uh, you know, in the center and the left in this country uh, around the entire Trump era. And that is the idea that until and unless there is some form of accountability directly that falls on the shoulders of Donald Trump, that it's not enough to put the sort of flagpole-wielding goons of January 6th into jail if the people who told them to go there never face a moment of reckoning. And I think that's what you're seeing in some of the commentary after this settlement. But it really, it does reflect also the gap between the legal culture in this country and the political Mm -hmm. culture. And I've seen so many lawyers quoted in the last few days saying, listen, if you wanted, you know, that kind of accountability, you were never going to get it in our uh, system, you know, it's all about the money and it's money that talks. And in 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 the love language of the legal system, uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch has really had to to pay up a lot. But you're, you know, basically naive if you think that, you know, there's any other kind of accountability that could result here. I, I feel like in some ways it was as if the whole country had seen the previews for this right. show that we were going to see. And then they, then they, they brought down it. the curtain and they said, you know, no popcorn, go home. And, and, and so there were a lot of people who were waiting for something more. I mean, you're right that the lawyers have said, first of all, that this is a tremendous amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, so that Dominion did very well and Fox took a very big bite. I mean, but, you know, as someone who used to work for the Wall Street Journal, I have to say, take a look at them at Fox. It's a pretty healthy company. It's got a market capitalization of, of, of uh, I think, $17.3 billion or mm. something like that. And yeah. it had $4 billion plus just in cash and cash equivalents sitting around. So $787.5 million is painful, but it's not going to be life-changing for Fox. And, and um, but there, but again, going back to what the lawyers say, they've also said, you know, there were risks going forward. Um, even if you wanted to see Dominion win in this case, it's possible that they might not have. Mm. If they had lost, it probably would have um, made a lot of people want to rethink the libel laws in this country, including the Supreme Court. And, um, and you never know what would have happened on appeal. You don't know what would have happened if it had made it to the Supreme Court, and it would have taken years and years. And so this is this is money up front. So that's how the lawyers look at it. And that gets to the key question, which is their finances are what they are, very strong. And I think one of the arguments that's come forward in the last couple of days, put forward particularly by Jack Schaefer at Politico, is that in some ways, this is not a bug for Fox. This is a feature. This is how they do business. And he kind of reminds us of all of these different suits that they've had over the years, whether it was in one case, you know, it was $50 million for uh, women at Fox News who alleged sexual harassment. It was, in fact, there was one that I forgot about, $500 million for some supermarket coupon trade secret lawsuit. Um, And yet they soldier on. So my question, Susan, is, is, does this in fact change the culture at Fox News in any way? Does this bend the curve of ultimately... Is it bad enough for business that they need to say, try something different? Yeah, I mean, always listen to Jack Schaefer. That's uh, that's mm-hmm. another uh, political principle uh, we can all observe. Jack is right. Um, this is how Rupert Murdoch does business. It's a cost of doing business. In this case, it's a particularly high cost. And we should note that it's not even the final amount of money. Smartmatic, which is another voting machines company, currently has a $2.7 billion lawsuit against Fox treading on much of the same territory. When the settlement came out the other day, I noticed with interest that uh, Smartmatic's CEO said, well, you know, Dominion started the job and we're going to 
finish it in our case. So it might not even be the final amount of money that Fox is required to pay here. But that being said, you know, I think it reminds me really of Donald Trump's habit of serially using the courts and lawsuits uh, to serve his own business and now political interests by tying uh, disputes up in the courts, uh, by seeing this essentially as a cost of doing business rather than uh, any kind of um, external deterrent to proceeding one way or the other. I mean, you know, does anyone actually think that, oh, Fox is going to be totally different? Uh, If anything, they're bragging uh, about their continued strength in the ratings among cable news outlets, bragging in the statement about uh, their commitment to uh, journalistic standards, which seems uh, to have been pretty comprehensively debunked in the evidence that has emerged in this case. And, you know, I I just I think it's it's a story again about the distorting effect that lies have in our politics and you know it seems to me that with Donald Trump as the front runner the front runner for the Republican nomination two and a half years after the events that are covered in this lawsuit his stature in the race has gone up not down in the period of time when these revelations from Dominion have been made public uh you know he is having a moment in which his continued dominance of the Republican Party uh, has meant that even Murdoch and his network, which tried to quit Trump after 2020, they're back to offering Trump, you know, basically slavish coverage. I mean, I, I suggest that listeners, if they can stomach it, look at some of the Tucker Carlson quote-unquote interview with Donald Trump that he did last week. Again, you would this never is, know that he secretly no. felt that Donald Trump was a <laughs> demonic <laughs> force. We spent more than an hour with Donald Trump today, and we were struck throughout the course of the conversation how his grasp of foreign policy, this man who was supposedly stupid, his understanding of world affairs is so much more nuanced and sophisticated and pro-American than the moronic neocons currently in charge. It was remarkable. It's always been a deal, yeah. basically. We all, we know that Rupert Murdoch had called Trump from the start an effing moron. Um, and, and, and from the very beginning, even way back in the 80s, it's always been a deal. Um, the deal is that Donald Trump gets publicity, he gets famous, um, he gets power, and Rupert Murdoch gets readers, viewers, clicks, which translate into money. And that has been this pas de deux that has run straight through the Trump administration, and they've enabled each other. By the way, A-plus use of pas de deux in a podcast. Thank you. You know, I get tired of guys always use sports metaphors. That's true. So I have made a practice of trying to use ballet, ballet and fashion analogy. metaphors. I think the time has come. The political scene will be right back. And when we return, we'll look at the succession-like dynamics in the Murdoch family. All right. So it seems like the consensus here is that this settlement, as large as it is, is not going to fundamentally change what Fox is. But now you've brought up the question of the Murdochs themselves, this complicated chemistry of personalities, of generations, of power, and ultimately of money. All of us are thinking about what the future holds for this family, uh, even if you weren't watching Succession, which I'll remind you, by the way, the working title of that script apparently was Murdoch. So this is not a not a remote abstraction of the family. 
It is exactly as close as you're probably going to get in a fictionalized form. So, Jane, you have written a lot about this topic. You've thought a lot about the players. You've interviewed a lot of them. Paint a portrait for us for a second of who the Murdochs are, who are the key players, and what roles do they play in the future? Well, this is an incredibly colorful dynasty. Um, and even before we get into it, I just want to say, apropos of the idea that um, that succession is fiction, there was a divorce settlement recently involving Jerry Hall and Rupert Murdoch. And I, I, there was a fantastic piece about it in Vanity Fair by Gabe Sherman. And one of the little tiny items in it was that Jerry Hall is forbidden from talking to the uh, cast and the writers of Succession. Um, hmm. in, 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 and providing plot lines and explicitly providing, as part of her divorce. Yeah, settlement. Is, I thought that, that was the case. Writers, <laughs> Basically, it seemed to me that it was confirmation that this is, in fact, should be seen as a form of, uh, you know, dramatized documentary <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, uh, dramatic uh, invention of any sort. So... Absolutely. So at the pinnacle of this dynasty is the non-Nigerian, excuse me, non-Nigerian, is that how you pronounce <laughs> well, it? Okay, yeah. but how old is he really? I'm yeah. trying to remember, 90? He's 90. Hold on, Well, guys. he's older than Logan okay. Roy, although we don't want to spoil <laughs> that. So uh, and by the way, if there are any listeners who haven't 92. watched, okay. you should tune out now. Okay, um, 92-year-old Rupert Murdoch, who has built this empire. He's Australian. He's always been an outsider pushing his way in. Um, and he's made billions and billions and billions. And he has several sets of children. Wife number one had one daughter. Uh, wife number two had three children. And wife number three had two children. Only the first four children get shares in the company. They are Prudence, his daughter from the first wife, and they are Elizabeth, Lachlan, and James, his three children from his second wife. Hmm. Each of them has one share. So they have, between the four siblings, four shares. Rupert Murdoch has four shares. What happens if Rupert Murdoch dies? Those shares will be evenly distributed among the four children that he's got that already have the shares. What does this mean? There could be an unbelievable power struggle Hmm. within the dynasty. And the question is, how will those siblings line up and and who will have the power who will have the majority and 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 apparently Rupert Murdoch much like succession likes to play the siblings off against each other and we've seen over the years some are up some are down and some are friendly with their father and some are on the outs and then they're on the outs with each other right now Lachlan Murdoch is running Fox and his brother James is on the outs they don't speak to each other uh, reportedly um, but James, would, um, who is much more liberal than his father and his brother Lachlan, um, has designs. Well, and by the way, James uh, actually hosted a Democratic fundraiser last year that uh, one Joe Biden attended at his home. And so this question is obviously going to be ripe if there is a plot twist a la succession and Rupert Murdoch finally uh, you know, faces, uh, you know, his end at some point. In fact, interestingly, I just looked up the fictional Logan Roy was only either 82 or 84 years old, depending on uh, which uh, internet source you believe. Whereas, well, I uh, mean, the thing it, about Murdoch is that 
longevity runs in his family. So he it's, might be his 92, mother lived but his to be over a hundred. Well right. over a hundred. And also I will so. say and Rupert has said that he's, as he put it at one point, convinced of his own immortality. I think that's more <laughs> than just rhetoric. I mean what what we know, as Jane described, Lachlan of course is running the company. James is no longer involved. Um, there was one of the details in Gabe Sherman's reporting that was quite compelling was that on some level that the joy of running the company has been sapped now that it's no longer a fraternal competition. And so one of the questions that I think people have is what about these other two players, Elizabeth and Prudence? And is there any sense of how the <laughs> choreography to the pas de deux, as Jane would say, how that lines up if they find themselves in a moment of realignment? Well, I think this is actually where it, you can circle right back to the beginning of this conversation about the uh, payout to Dominion and possible payouts to others, which is to say, do you get to the point where the kind of disastrous political choices and the compromises that that are required in the Trump era of Republican politics, are an era that is not only not finished, but very much still in progress, where that actually affects the value of the business and the decisions that, that, that Rupert Murdoch will have to make as long as he is still in charge. I definitely was thinking about this convergence between sort of fact and fiction. And this week, there's this scene in the current season, uh, if You've been watching it, which is the final season of I've been Succession. Proust, I've uh, been reading Proust. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, you know, <laughs> Evan, I don't want to, I don't want to oh, upset Evan. you with this, but there is a moment where Logan Roy is confronting in person his three renegade children uh, who have broken with him, and he is, you know, once again, you know, trying to be the crafty deal maker, uh, even with his own kids, who he does not hesitate to betray at every possible turn, and he says. To them, well, you know, I don't do apologies, but, uh, you know, to the extent that uh, you feel that one is necessary, I'm sorry. And then they immediately realize that, you know, he hasn't said what the heck he's sorry for. And I just that was literally the first thing that sprang to mind when I saw the non-apology, mm-hmm. apology, uh, sorry, <laughs> not sorry from Fox this week, right? It's exactly the same thing. It's an entire company that doesn't do apologies. They'll pay for their screw-ups as Jack Schaefer listed all the ways in which Rupert Murdoch will pay for the screw-ups, but they'll never say they're I mean, that sorry. is the title. Fox doesn't do apologies. I mean, that is in its own kind and, of strange way where this thing nets out. Yeah. And what we're waiting for in this whole country is a huge apology for what's <laughs> happened in the last few <laughs> do, years. Would that make it's, you feel better, do you think, Jade, if they would just, like, you know, forget about, like, you know, I mean, we're not getting it. the money, right? <laughs> but, here, actually, but on a serious note, it is also about forcing – Onto the public record, the video demonstration of one star of Fox after another saying to their people, I lied to you. I knew something and I didn't tell you. I told you the opposite. Do you think that would actually have any effect in Uh, breaking the spell? I think it would help to hear them all admit that they lie for a living. Um, Instead, they're up there, you know, um, picking up just where they left off. I wanted to say, since we were going down through the children, that, that the daughter Elizabeth Murdoch is said to be very, very bright. And I think she has produced a number of successful television shows on her own. Um, she was married to one of the, I think, a grandchild of, of Freud, um, the psychiatrist. Um, and um, That could come in handy. You know, in she <laughs> she might need say, it like, in this family. Yeah. I feel like Shiv was uh, the character who was meant to like be like her in – uh, succession, but she always disappointed, right? Like, there's this the the very last thing that Logan Roy ever says to these children of his is, "I love you, 
but none of you are serious people. Yeah, it's an amazing moment. It's, an ama- it's incredible. <laughs> well, I, I think okay, and to say something you know serious about what the situation amounts to is, I mean, looking at it from stepping back is it's kind of incredible that this country is at the sort of uh, mercy of a billionaire dynasty and we're waiting for the succession to see whether the next generation of politics is going to be dominated by a hard right reactionary Australian family or by, um, you know, a different wing of the family that believes that climate change is real. You know, and, and that that would have so much influence over American politics gives you an idea of what the concentration of wealth in this country has re- and of the concentration of media in this well, country and also, has resulted in. And the fusion of a particular political party and ideology with a television network and a, and a news platform. Because really, like when we were going back and trying to write the story of Trump's four years in office, it ended up again and again and again, being a story about a remarkable synthesis, almost a fusion between an administration and a television network in a way that actually had no precedent in American it history. It was a joint and, venture, Yeah, really. absolutely. Exactly and right. That's the perfect so way to many, put it, a joint venture. So many people, yeah. even in Trump's own cabinet, would say that they would actually go on Fox in order to send a news and a message to the president because that was the only thing that he cared about that he took seriously. I will never forget early on in our reporting for the book when one uh, White House official who worked for Trump in the White House said, you know, it was as if Donald Trump uh, took the role of Mike TV in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory seriously. And Mike TV is the little American kid. Remember the kid with the cowboys who is so convinced that like television is everything. All he wants to do 24 hours a day is watch television. He actually asked Willy Wonka to put him inside the TV. And, you know, imagine that this is a White House official saying that this is how Donald Trump interpreted the job. And for him, of course, the TV in question was actually just all Fox TV. Fox I mean, TV. and don't forget that Bill Shine, who was one of the top executives at Fox, went into the White House, become the sort of the one of the top executives in the Trump White House. I mean, they, they, was, they were interchangeable parts. The only thing that seemed to show that there was any difference was where they were drawing their paychecks from. So in a way, I mean, what, we've, what we learned even in the pretrial phase of this was that Fox is in some ways kind of now captive to the monster that it created when it comes to its base, where it kind of is too timid to disappoint them. I think that leads us naturally to this question of, all right, in a post-Dominion suit world, where we're kind of, as we are here, more or less lamenting the fact that even the arguably largest defamation settlement in history may not actually mean a whole heck of a lot. What does it take to change this, what has to be described as a kind of culture of disinformation that we're living in right now? Is there anything that could honestly do that? <laughs> the silence. I'm counting on you, Jane. <laughs> the silence You're going to lift us up. I think I will argue I will argue that that I think these kinds of huge sums of money in damages help. They send a message through a newsroom, even a newsroom like Fox, any newsroom, um, that says there is a third rail, you can't go too far. Um you can't know that you're lying and call it journalism. You can't be protected by the First Amendment for lying about 
news purposefully. And I think, I mean, that message came through. Um, I would have, I, th- I think that Fox obviously didn't want it to come through too loud and clear, which is why they didn't go for a trial. They but didn't I think want it's the true. The there, it's just undeniable it. that so much of what we talk about in politics as driven ultimately by money, by the bottom line, means that we also have to put on the other side of the ledger, when things like this do happen, they do have a signal effect. I mean, they just ripple through the consciousness of people who are deciding how to behave in the future. And let's remember, this is not the last case of this kind. I mean, they are facing at least four other lawsuits, and then there are all of the little foxes out there. And so my question, Susan, is do you think that they are in some subtle way, if you're a, you know, a line producer or you're the general counsel or you're the CEO at one of these companies or companies that haven't even fully formed yet, do you say, all right, I got to find a business line that's a slightly more um, prudent route? <laughs> Evan, I'm going to leave it to you to make the case for uh, that <laughs> prudence optimistic. is actually good good for business. Uh, quite the opposite. I mean, I have to say, guys, like, first of all, the, the lesson here is that, you know, crime pays. The, the, the big lie about the 2020 election was Really one of the most extraordinary political things that's happened in any of our lifetimes politically in the United States. And the message here is that Donald Trump and Fox got away with it. They had to, you know, Fox ultimately had to pay. We don't know yet how much because it could be more even than the nearly billion dollars. But it's already too late to go back and convince the millions, the tens of millions of Republicans who believe that the 2020 U.S. presidential election was not legitimate. Uh, And that, you can't undo the damage, the incalculable, by the way, damage to the U.S. political system. This is the first time in American history that any president, Democrat or Republican, refused to concede defeat and to accept the lawful results of an election. And as part of that, Fox essentially entered into a conspiracy with him along with other outlets. And, you know, rather than being the, you know, the sort of uh, prudent niche, uh, quite the opposite. What we saw about conservative media, in fact, was that it was a race to an ever more dangerous bottom in which Fox was up against people who defined their business niches as being more uh, dangerous, more disruptive, because, in fact, there's there's a business model that says, well, let's get the political audience for it right now. And if there's some, you know, damage to our business later, we'll, we'll pay it as a cost of doing business because actually having an audience to them is more valuable from a business perspective than paying whatever fines result from the recklessness that they believe their audience is requiring them to engage in. I mean, not every, but not every news organization can afford a damage settlement of this size. I mean, and we have seen, I, I, I had high hopes for the Alex Jones um, trial, and that was where we we did get a trial, and and you can see the problem is it's it's the courts are tangles of years worth of tying up money, and it's very hard to get any accountability again. But I I I, I am thinking as usual, <laughs> slightly more <laughs> optimistic. I'm not really optimistic on this because I do think Fox has proven that th- there's a there's a market for disinformation. There's a market for extremism. If if they were knocked out. You know, some other organization would come right in and, and and do it too. But I don't think 
that uh, responsible news organizations want to get anywhere near doing what Fox has been doing, and they're still very responsible news organizations. They're not. They weren't. They but just, that's the problem, exactly. I mean, that's like you know, it's like it reminds me of the old joke, like you know, like well, sir, you know, to Adlai Stevenson, like you know, a woman runs up to him and she says, well, you know, every thinking person is for you, and he says, well, madam, that's the problem. <laughs> you know, I, that's the problem. I need a majority. I mean, you know, the responsible news organizations are not the problem. We're in an environment in which uh, this kind of uh, disinformation and demagoguery sells and it spreads faster and more potentially lethally to our democracy than ever. And I also think, Jane, you made a great point earlier about that's really important, that there are potential really scary precedents that could come from this kind of uh, litigation anyways against um, news organizations, no matter how flawed they are. And, you know, to a certain extent, you there is a little bit of a sigh of relief that they settled the case, if only because I don't really want to see how far the Supreme Court no. is willing to go when it comes to defending the New York Times versus Sullivan precedent. Two of the justices have made quite clear, basically, they've said they want to revisit Times v. Sullivan, which is the, the opinion that really protects news organizations when they make honest mistakes. They don't want to, they want to kick that down. And that's Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, both of whom had have had big beefs with the news media during their lives. And people will seems, know Thomas's case, but what what is Gorsuch's beef with the media? That may be his I think it goes somebody. back to his mom, hmm. who um, was uh, you know the EPA commissioner during the Reagan years, and she got a, some really rough coverage. And I I think you know it it was a a searing situation for him growing up as a, a young teenager. And you've seen him already in in, uh, in recent opinions in which he, as he said at one point, our nation's media landscape has shifted in ways few could have foreseen since 1964. So he's already sort of opening the door to the possibility of some big change. As we wrap it up, that is actually in some ways perhaps one of the more foreboding questions that we're still contending with, which is that if a big defamation case goes to the Supreme Court, do you think we are sitting, Susan? and now on the sort of doorstep of a new era in which not only would we have news organizations that think it's okay to get away with disinformation, but then you also have a court that is willing to side with them. Well, I, you know, Evan, I do. I think that just as we've seen in recent years, the Republican Party radicalized, and that has meant radicalized uh, members of Congress, uh, a radical disruptive president in the form of Donald Trump. And I think we now have uh, a radical Supreme Court that is willing uh, to chuck out previous precedent in a way that uh, is something we haven't seen in really in, in our lifetimes. And, you know, when I think about the Supreme Court, it, it's also at, at all the lower levels as well. Uh, when we were just starting out as journalists, you know, it, it was seen as a pretty fixed, a pretty settled matter. It was not the age of the gigantic libel suit. It was, uh, you know, a sense that as long as you were writing about a public figure, you know, you were pretty, pretty protected. That is no longer the sense. And, you know, you talk to First Amendment lawyers, and I admit to a, you know, sort of a, a conflict of interest in this case. My my brother is the the lawyer for the Los Angeles Times, and you know the age of threatening lawsuits to to big media organizations is back. And I think in part that re- reflects an emboldened class of would be plaintiffs who sees that the Supreme Court at some point or another might be willing to revisit this this landmark 1964 decision. Well, at I the risk just... of leaning into our stereotypes mm-hmm. here, of you know, I do. I do confess that Susan sometimes persuades me with a more cool-headed approach. 
the optimist in me says that what this also does is separate out different kinds of news organizations where the fact is there is a fundamental difference between a place that does fact-checking, that goes through the kind of sometimes crazy rigor that goes into a piece of the kind that you do read in our in our uh, humble pages that is just fundamentally different. Than, and it's all called news, but these are completely different animals. Am I being too optimistic, Jane? No, I, th- I think I think you're right. And I, I guess I think that we still live in a country where um, the truth is the ultimate defense, and you can get charged a lot when you lie. And we learned that this week. Well, guys, this has a, been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Jane, and thank you, Susan. Great to be with you. Great as to always. be with you, too. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Dan Richards. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll see you next week.